2: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Things are, ladies and gentlemen, as I said, they would be. You may remember last year when all around us was doom and gloom, when there seemed to be no way out of the Brexit stalemate, when it appeared that all hope uh, was lost. Remember that feeling of frustration, of hopelessness, of a complete and utter lack of control over events, those endless days uh, in the home of Common Sense, in the tent of Common Sense on College Green in Westminster? Well, you might also remember that I was one of the lone voices at the time who said it would all come out in the wash that it would be all right in the end and no matter what boris johnson would get brexit done and that my friends is precisely what happened we left the european union on january 31st 2020 now i also said that everyone obsessing about the detail in the agreement shouldn't bother and so that has proved as well today we learned the prime minister actually thinks the brexit deal that was done never really made any sense in the first place and now he wants to rewrite it which has caused all sorts of panic in the ranks seemingly some tories are saying we mustn't water it down other people are saying well what difference does it make if we leave without a deal in fact we'd rather leave without a deal than leave with a bad deal the question is is boris johnson right will he be able to forge a better deal or are we now 37 days away from leaving without a deal altogether and let's face it, the biggest question really is, does it actually matter? We'll be asking Richard Tice, chairman of the Brexit party this morning, where well, he makes it all. 0344 499 four, nine, 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be wondering as well why no one saw the furlough scheme being abused by unscrupulous companies and individuals. So far, HMRC thinks that as much as 3.5 billion quid may have been lost thanks to frauds and blunders. The sooner it ends, the better. Surely, get people back to work, get people back to normal, get people away from this nonsensical uh, society that we seem to have created of dependency, right? And of course, we'll also be checking out the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, Harry and Meghan, who have now achieved financial independence, we are told, and paid off the 2.4 million pounds they owed us for Frogmore Cottage. It's about bleeding time, isn't it? Oh, finally, he stopped taking money from his dad. He's only 35 blimey 0344 499 1000 we'll be checking in with Georgie Frost on the holiday front after several Greek islands were added to the quarantine list yesterday and we're joined by Lord Sugar who will give us his views on the nation returning to work how soon they're going to do it and why they need to most of all of course we want to hear from you too. Your hopes, your fears, and what you're hearing on this back-to-school week. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio front pages this morning filled with all sorts of doubts about Brexit. I've already heard on Julie Hartley Brewer's show this morning, several guests, you know, going on and on and on about whether the Brexit deal is going to be the right deal, whether or not we're going to hit the cliff edge, whether or not, you know, it's all the same old language that we heard uh, months and months and months ago, which I thought people had forgotten about. The doom and gloom mongers who tell us that they can't come out of their homes now because they're frightened of COVID-19 are still the same people saying, oh my God, we're going to leave the European Union, it's all going to be terrible, it's all going to be awful, Uh, and, you know, for heaven's sake, do cheer up. Let's talk to Richard Tice, chairman of the Brexit Party, uh, a man that knows a thing or two about negotiating with the European Union. Richard, a very good morning to you.
3: Good morning to you, Mike. It's like old times, isn't it? It I mean, really it's quite is extraordinary. All, these, all <laughs> these doomsters, you know, so terrified of uh, the fact that we've actually—they seem to—we've already left the European yeah. Union. Uh, we've had a crisis uh, in between, which has caused all sorts of problems. And the truth is, Mike that relative to the other challenges we've got as a nation with our economy, with millions of people losing their jobs, uh, with getting out of this COVID crisis, actually, whether or not we do a trade deal with the EU, it's like a pimple on the nose Mm. of the other challenges we've got.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, The Guardian this morning, Richard, true to form, has a headline that says Brussels collapsing trust in the prime minister revealed in leaked EU documents. Well, good. I'm very glad that Brussels doesn't trust the prime minister. And I'm very glad that he's messing about with them.
3: Well, let's let's be honest. We don't trust Brussels either. Right. And given the way that they've been negotiating, uh, you know, with this, uh, you know, through, through the uh, recent months, uh, Monsieur Barnier basically uh, refusing to offer what he's previously offered and signed, uh, the EU's offered and signed deals with the likes of Canada, South Korea, Japan. Um, you know, actually, in my view, uh, they've, they've demonstrated a lack of good faith, which is a fundamental tenet of any form of negotiations like this. Yeah, exactly and, right. Know, and the, I mean, the reality yeah. is, if if they don't demonstrate good faith in these negotiations, then we're perfectly entitled to say, actually, they've they've already breached uh, the tenet of the political declaration and the tenet of the withdrawal agreement, because the two go hand in hand. And people seem to forget, you know, the very basis of the Article 50 on which you leave the European Union says that you have to set out with the withdrawal agreement, the framework for future trade. Well, if they're not uh, entering into future trade in good faith, then frankly, the whole thing uh, potentially um, falls apart.
2: Right. And lots of this conversation now surrounds the issue of Northern Ireland. And I mean, I was rather incredulous this morning to read a, a statement which said, well, we may have to do a deal uh, which covers Northern Ireland without getting uh, the, the sign off, if you like, from the EU. Well, frankly, I don't see why they need to sign it off. You know, they're going to tell us that, well, because uh, the the Republic of Ireland is part of the EU, we must be party to any agreement. But actually, I don't think they do have to be party to any agreement between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK.
3: Uh, You're absolutely right. And uh, those people saying that haven't properly read and understood the terms of the withdrawal agreement. I Mm. think it's clause 38 uh, that makes it very clear, regardless of everything else in the uh, withdrawal agreement, now, the EU recognises uh, that the UK is a sovereign, independent nation, and that nothing will uh, get in the way of that. And as a sovereign, independent nation, we can determine, uh, if, you know, based on our domestic laws, what is the trading relationship between uh, the four components of the United Kingdom. In this case, between uh, the other three and Northern Ireland. Right. And so, it's actually up to the UK government to determine. Uh, how goods are treated as they move from Northern Ireland to the rest of uh, the United Kingdom.
2: Hmm. And do you think Boris is right when he says that basically the the deal that was originally sort of signed and sealed uh, doesn't make a lot of sense? Are there bits of that that you worry about?
3: Look, the truth is um, we we said uh, day one that uh, there were bits of it that uh, we weren't happy about. That was very much part of the basis on which the Brexit Party uh, stood in the general election. Um, and we all knew at the time Boris was bluffing and blustering his way through. And and I guess really people, when they voted, they basically trusted him to sort it out. You know, it'll be all right on the night. Let's get over the finishing line. That's what he did. As you said earlier, you know, um, we'll get there in the end. And, and that's the view that people took. But we knew it wasn't. Uh, it was far from perfect. And um, but people said, well, let's let's get it over the line and then let's keep negotiating and see where it takes us. But you know, in business, Mike, we all know, no deal is always better than a bad deal. Mm. When I founded Leave Means Leave, straight after the referendum, I coined that expression. I was delighted when Theresa May used it uh, in her Lancaster House speech. That was the only thing that she ever delighted me about. (laughs) um, Because thereafter, she reneged on everything. Right. In business, that's the reality. And uh, no deal is always better than a bad deal. And if I actually think that um, at the 11th and a half hour, uh, something will be cobbled together. It's it's how the EU does business. Hmm. I think there'll be some form of partial deal where both sides can say they've maintained some red lines, but actually for the vast bulk of uh, goods and things, there's no tariffs. Look, We might end up with a situation where there's a few tariffs on a few goods or where uh, services is not as perfect as it previously was. But as I have said before, time and again, what we've learned from this COVID crisis is actually we mustn't be so reliant on this form of just-in-time global supply Mm. chains, whether it's from the EU or the rest of the world. Um, We need a much more resilient uh, supply chain, which is domestic. And we've learned that actually, the opportunity is to make British, it's to buy British, it's to think British, um, particularly for things that are critical to our existence, whether it's paracetamol, Insulin, uh, you know, growing more food so that we we consume 80 percent, sorry, we produce 80 percent of what we consume rather than currently less than 60 percent. You know, uh, those are the sort of things that we need to be focusing on and, and focusing on. Uh, you know, we might need, in fact, we definitely will need the ability to use state aid in order to help some of our critical strategic national industries, mm. whether it's Rolls Royce, British Aerospace, um, Uh, businesses like that, British Airways, you know, some of these businesses are going to have a terrible time over the next few months and we need the ability, if necessary, to move at incredible speed uh, to help them out. Mm. Well, this is
2: it. I mean, given the amount of subsidy that's currently washing around inside the Treasury, uh, the fact that we've got so much money being given away that at least two and a half to three and a half billion pounds, apparently, uh, has been fraudulently removed from the Treasury by furlough, the furlough scheme and unscrupulous employers. You know, the idea that we would somehow lock ourselves out of any ability to help companies is
3: a madness, isn't it? It's complete madness. And uh, there is, for example... Uh, the, the government has, has recently made an investment in a satellite business, OneWeb, which is extremely sensible. It's a big investment in, 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 in new technology. It's just the sort of thing that we should be doing, and we need to retain the right to do that um, on a very fast basis, and we need to be incredibly competitive. I want the UK to be the Singapore of the West, mm. You know, just off the shores of continental Europe, incredibly successful, being patriotic consumers, growing our own food and produce, making our own goods, um, and, and, you know, if they're quality goods and we offer them at the right price, they'll be bought around the rest of the world. So, you know, it, it's a huge opportunity and, you know, people worry about a bit of disruption here and a bit of disruption there. My word, we put up with a huge amount of disruption throughout this year and actually people have worked out, you know, there's a lot more things to worry about. Uh, Than a few lorries being a bit slow in and around Dover. I tell you what, folks, companies have had plenty of time to prepare for this. The truth is, what they're doing is they're saying, "Well, we can use other ports. Mm. We can use Southampton. We can use Folkestone. Um, um, We can use uh, Felixstowe. You know, there's a variety of different ports that can be used. That's what uh, companies should be doing with contingency planning. So, look, I I think um, with or without a deal, uh, you know, the truth is, we've got lots of other challenges." It'll be all right. Um, We need to be much more optimistic and we need a leader and a cabinet uh, that is much more optimistic about our future potential rather than uh, a health secretary is saying, You mustn't
2: hug your granny at Christmas. Well, I mean, this is astonishing. We're going to be talking about that later on in the show. But let's just touch on that at the moment because we're hearing from Matt Hancock um, that, you know, we might have to reduce the numbers of people that we can meet up in houses with. I mean, I've got a friend in Scotland who can't go and see his mother uh, unless he meets her in a pub. You're kind of going, what sort of madness is this? What sort of craziness? Uh, You know, the, the sort of the mind control numpties have taken over. And, you know, so you're all right to go to a pub and meet a load of strange people. My kids go back to school, right? One of them has to wear a mask. In the corridor, uh, but he's not allowed to meet any of his friends outside of school, uh, who he's actually been sitting with all day, in case they somehow infect each other. I mean, it's just ridiculous, totally.
3: It it, it is completely ridiculous. You know, the truth is that actually, uh, like many other nations, we are now on top of COVID. And, you know, fortunately, very, very small numbers are being hospitalized, much smaller numbers. Uh, are, are, are sadly dying of this mm. you know, you, you're more likely to be run over crossing the road uh, or by catching pneumonia or right. the summer flu and we need some positive leadership from this government to tell the story and to tell the truth rather than to continually terrifying and petrifying half the nation mm. No, you're quite fine. right do you what do you make of these stories that
1: Boris
2: Johnson might be looking to sort of step aside at some point before the end of the end of his term? And if he is going to do that, um, would you find that unexpected?
3: No, I, I think, to be honest, that was just a bit of um, uh, what, what we call the, the silly season of mm. August August stories when the journalists, are, you know, they run out of things to write about. Um, no, I think that's complete nonsense. Clearly, uh, he is still struggling from the after effects. Yeah. And clearly he's found that actually this is an incredibly serious job that requires, you know, totally focus and attention, a real, uh, you know, attention to detail. And that's not one of his strengths. And he's he's having to learn a bit on the job. But I would fully expect him to, uh, you know, to regain some of his uh, his confident, courageous optimism that we know from the Boris of old. And, you know, what, what I've said recently and I stand by is that if he carries out a reshuffle of some of the woefully weak members of its cabinet, I'm thinking of education secretaries in particular mm. and various others, uh, and brings in some, you know, there is some, some much better talent on the back benches, uh, and, and they move forward with enthusiasm, with optimism, and with a bit of leadership, then actually, uh, you know, they can sh- show the necessary drive and encouragement, and we can get going again. But at the moment, you know, there's constant mixed messages, U-turns, who knows where we are? You know, quarantine's here, countries in, countries out. It's just not good enough. Mm. And we're all going to suffer as a result.
2: But you're still supportive of the government and of the, the prime minister at the moment uh, until such time as the 37 days uh, runs out, I guess. And you see what we get.
3: I, I, I'm still supportive of their Brexit position. Uh, they need to remain robust. Uh, Lord David Frost has, uh, you know, has been robust to date. Um I don't think they'll sell us down the river on fishing or state aid. I'd be astonished if they do. Um, You know, we reserve the right, of course, to make it very clear if they do. But I I just don't think they do. I think uh, that's the foundation of this Conservative uh, administration. And, you know, if they were to renege on that, then frankly, the foundations would crumble all around them.
2: No, of course. And finally, Richard, you and I have spoken about it many times, the need for the return of the population of offices in cities in Britain, not just in London, but elsewhere. Um, you've said previously that, you know, this absolutely does need to happen. You talked about possibly doing uh, coming up with some form of enticement or possibly attacks on on people who work from home. Um, what's what's your sort of feeling about that this week? It feels to me like there's a little bit more activity going on. The train's a little bit busier, still not very. Um, but I wonder whether the return to school is changing things a little bit.
3: Well, it, it barely is the answer, Mike. I am desperately concerned. You know, the holidays are over, schools are back. You know, train station car parks should be, should be pretty busy this mm. week. Uh, my research tells me uh, various commuter stations around London, um, they are still, you know, only 15 to 20% uh, busy at best. Mm. I'm in the city of London as we speak. It's an absolute ghost town. Um, I'm desperately, desperately worried about it. I, 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 look, there is a real win-win by part working from home, part coming to the office. But in my view, yes, you can be productive if you're reading or writing a report at home, but you can't brainstorm and come up with ideas and be creative, uh, you know, like you can uh, when you're in an office with people. And, you know, most importantly of all, we've all got a duty, uh, you know, those of us of a certain age and and sort of working experience to pass on our, our, our knowledge, our experience, our techniques, to young people, Mm. children and such like, because that's how society continues. And I think that's really important. And it's just, you know, it's not right that people just starting out in work in their 20s are cooped up in, you know, two bedroom flats in suburbs of London, not able to come into the office and, and, you know, learn how to help drive the economy forward Mm. for the future generations. No, exactly. I mean, I
2: I stepped onto the tube at about 20 past six last night uh, to go out for dinner and literally not one soul on the platform uh, and this was at Canada Water, which normally would be a really, really busy station at that time. Not even I mean, not even one person. I mean, it's extraordinary.
3: Yeah. It, so I, I'm desperately worried about it. I, I i think that, you know, we 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 are in a situation where this is now the new normal. And if people are not coming back this week, frankly, they're probably not going to for a long, long time. Mm. Um, a lot more businesses uh, in the capital cities and other cities are going to go bust. Hundreds of thousands are going to lose their jobs. And, you know, for those who are sitting at home saying, I'm not coming back to work, you know, it's all very nice for me. Well, um, you know, just uh, I I think um, we've got a responsibility to society. We can have a win-win, as I say. Um, But if you think you're never going to go to the office again, be very, very careful that, uh, you know, you being employed in Leafy Hazelmere uh, or Leafy Hampstead suddenly your job might disappear to Leafy Bangalore.
2: Yes. Exactly right. Richard, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed as ever. Richard Tice, uh, chairman of the Brexit Party, talking a lot of sense there about the repopulation and the necessity for the repopulation of the office business uh, in London, in Manchester, in Birmingham, uh, also in Glasgow, in Newcastle, in Leeds, in Edinburgh, in Cardiff, in Swansea, you know, even in Exeter, in all sorts of parts of the country. It needs to happen. Otherwise, it's going to be a big
3: problem. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. But let's talk
2: now uh, to Andrew Bridget, MP. He's Conservative MP for North West and Leicestershire. I'm not sure uh, the earthquake would have reached quite as far as that. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Nice to talk to you again. Um, and a long time since we spoke, really. I think it was just before... Um, uh, the uh, the lockdown that we had you in the tent of common sense, I seem to remember. Um, and now you're back, uh, back into Parliament, back into Brexit, back into the same old uh, fear-mongering that's been going on for years and years and years. But happily, only 37 days away, it would seem, from very possibly a no-deal Brexit. Uh, let's talk about the furlough scheme as well, because obviously um, this furlough fast as it's being called, is costing us somewhere between three and three and a half billion quid it's not really the government's fault but it's pretty dreadful that these unscrupulous businesses have taken some money when they shouldn't have
1: absolutely i think andrea um ledson's got a point i think firms who have made a genuine error should be given a couple of months to pay the money back yeah. uh, if they've uh, furloughed taken furlough payments when they shouldn't have done but then it's, it's down to hmrc to uh, relentlessly pursue people who've abused a very generous scheme to protect workers during the COVID uh, pandemic and um, and they should go to all lengths to ensure that uh, those rogue directors, business owners who've stolen taxpayers' money in time of national emergency are held to account for this. Mm.
2: I mean lots of them seem to have done that practice whereby they put them on furlough but then they make them work at the same time thereby basically getting them to work for them well,
1: for what, free. What, well what they should be paying that money back. Uh, and what we need is uh, uh, a hotline so that staff who've been intimidated into coming to work when they should have been furloughed uh, mm. can ring up and, uh, and and tell on their bosses, their rogue employers.
2: Yes, absolutely right. I mean, um, as I say, you can't really blame the government for it because there's always going to be an amount of, uh, of jiggery pokery, I suppose, that goes on. And it was a necessity that this was done at the time. But I mean, it now doesn't need to be extended, does it?
1: Um, Not unless we have uh, another severe second wave. But uh, the good news is that even though there's been a slight ticking up of the infection rate, um, thankfully, um, the death rate has remained, thankfully, very low. Mm.
2: No, it has. And I think we can probably say with some um, confidence that, that we may have seen the worst of it. I mean, I know that, uh, that people will always say you must be vigilant and, you know, Matt Hancock's always going to say that the disease is still out there, but it certainly doesn't seem to be hospitalising anywhere near as num- the same number of people as it was back in May and June.
1: Yes, and then a lot of the lockdown actually was imposed to protect the NHS uh, from being overwhelmed. Things we saw in other countries, such as Spain and Italy, because obviously if the NHS gets overwhelmed with COVID cases, Mm. then you've got the collateral damage of people still have heart attacks, still people have cancer, they need treatment and, and they become casualties of the NHS system being overloaded while we've got capacity. Um, we can continue to function with our economy.
2: Yeah. One of the things that we get uh, asked about quite a lot, though, is the forgotten um, freelancers, the people who pay tax on a PAYE basis, but have not somehow been given any help at all by Rishi Sunak. And it seems out of step, really, because, I mean, Rishi's been very good at sort of, you know, trying to cover off the bits that he missed at the beginning. But for some reason, and I don't quite know what the reason is, these poor individuals who haven't been able to really work because they tend to be in businesses that haven't been open, just haven't had any help at all, and they've already paid the tax for the year. Could there not be some way of, of, of getting that tax back to them in some way?
1: Well, I've got a few people in that situation in my constituency who've had uh, no support whatsoever, and it's been a real struggle for them, and my heart goes out to them. I think at the end of the year, having got through all this, yes, I think with there, there should be some uh, some tax concessions for people who haven't had any... Direct support from the government during the COVID outbreak.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that that could be done, and it would be so welcome because so many of them have just lost the will to live because they can't work. Um, but hopefully, and, and,
1: uh, and it would, and it would, and it would be fair. Yes, it would. And, and, and to be
2: fair to the government and the government has been very fair to almost every other group of people um, you know but yet this group still remains kind of outside the circle if you like what about the return to work in offices and things like that because obviously you know the government is facing a massive problem with the civil service we were told that Boris was going to announce last week a new initiative to get people back into the offices of, of this country um, but he couldn't do it because the civil service are so recalcitrant that they're not coming
1: back either
2: can he do better there?
1: Well, obviously, the problem was that the government were asking every city office to come back uh, and and get back to their desks at a time when possibly only 5% of civil servants were actually in the offices in central London. Mm. I mean, Westminster has been like a ghost town. I don't know if you've been been round yeah uh, i was over around, there
2: about i was over there about three weeks ago i couldn't believe it there was literally about three people walking down victoria street who were tourists and obviously wondering what was going on because they couldn't see big ben because was still covered up um but all the pubs were shut uh there was literally nobody there
1: well i mean it's it's been like sort of six o'clock on a sunday morning as yeah. far as the traffic around uh, around parliament is concerned um i had a meeting four weeks ago in the home office uh, with uh, one of Pretty Patel's spads about the modern slavery in Leicester. And quite honestly, uh, the, the home office is, is not far from, from where I am now at my flat in Westminster. Mm. Um, probably normally have two and a half thousand civil servants in there. When I went in, apart from the three security guards and the two ladies on the reception desk, the only person I saw was the person I was meeting. There was, seemed to be nobody else in the whole building. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, the government needs to do more, lead by example, uh, and it's all about confidence. Well, if, if, if the government's own civil servants haven't got the confidence to return to their desks, how can we persuade um, people who work for independent businesses to come back to their desks? But I, I do think, Mike, that there is going to be more home working. Uh, a proportion of staff are going to be continue to work from home. And quite honestly, if, if businesses genuinely believe that's a more efficient way of running their business, then there's nothing the government can do to persuade them otherwise.
2: Well, that's true. But then where does that leave the economy? Because the economy is driven by and large by the workings of the inner city and not just London, but other cities as well. But let's concentrate on London. I mean, Birmingham as well, I'm told, is a complete ghost town as well. Um, What does that mean for the future of, say, um, the London economy and the the British economy?
1: Well, it it, it would be be a paradigm shift. Uh, I think the public perception is that it's better to not live in a city if there's an emergency on. I mean, this could lead to changes in, in house prices and certainly changes in, in working. But also, what as we've seen, you know, who's on the trains at the moment? Mm. Yet we're pressing ahead with uh, the white elephant that's HS2 when uh, currently we've got a lot of surplus capacity on, on conventional mm. trains. Um, well, I, I mean, Crossrail th- looks uh, like
2: a pretty pointless project at the moment as well, doesn't it?
1: well i mean uh, we, we could be uh, event, events events can make fools falls of us all and and let's not beat around the bush this uh, the covid pandemic across the whole world uh, could be seismic changes in the way people want to live their lives mm. i mean it's gone on long enough that it, it's not it's not been a blip it's been months and months and not months and, and people have changed their habits mm. i do feel for all these restaurants and pubs who, who would have had a clientele uh, before the uh, the lockdown Um, it's been on long enough that even an established business really they've got a they're like a startup they don't really have any clientele when they start open those doors because they've been shut for so long um it's it's a very strange world for them
2: it really is and what about parliament itself Andrew we'll be having our second uh, prime minister's questions tomorrow um what is that like for you guys because do they do they sort of pick a handful of you to get in the chamber as and when how does it work
1: Well, you have to put in to be in the chamber. It's it's only uh, very, very few MPs uh, allowed in. Um, Parliament isn't really functioning without a large number of colleagues being allowed into the chamber. I don't feel the government's actually being held to account for the legislation that's moving through. Um, I don't think you appreciate how much, how important the chamber is until People haven't got access to it, mm. uh, whenever and when e- whenever they want to, to raise points uh, with the, whoever's at the dispatch box and the speaker. Um, I'm hearing we we might not be back to normal uh, until January, so Christmas. Um, it, it it's it's functioning so badly for holding the government to account mm. that it, it's it's. Uh, you know, It really brings into focus how important that chamber is. And the sooner we get back to that level of normality, um, I think the better. Yes. I think colleagues are getting very tired of this uh, only a few people being allowed in the chamber. There's no atmosphere and, and it's not really a democratic accountability.
2: No, exactly right. Good to see you, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed. Andrew Bridging, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Establishing really and explaining why it's important to be at work, right? Not working from home. The parliamentary system doesn't work from home. It can't, Okay, It doesn't work with very few people inside the chamber in the House of Commons or the House of Lords. It can't work properly if you can't get people into committee rooms to discuss things and to read bills and to make laws. So the same goes for all other businesses. You can't just sit around at home and go, oh, yeah, this is great. I'm really liking this. I'm having a nice banana sandwich with my toddler. You know, he's screaming, lying on the floor.
1: I don't know how to control it, but it's great fun being home. Really? I don't think so. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Now, we found out just the other day, did we not, uh, that Harry and Meghan, that would be Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, uh, who are, of course, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, bizarrely still the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I'm not quite sure why they're still allowed to be called that. I prefer to call them now the Duke and Duchess of Netflix because they did a deal uh, with the giant television company, uh, live streaming company, of course, as well, uh, to do what they think could be worth something like $100 million worth of business uh, with them filming all sorts of things, producing all sorts of projects, many of them, they say, uh, to do with the family, uh, which, as Piers Morgan pointed out, is rather uh, ironic considering that basically they both dumped both of their families, and they don't really seem to see them at all. Uh, Harry supposedly was going to come back to Britain to see his granny, uh, to see his dad, but he hasn't been back since they emigrated to Canada uh, and then shortly thereafter moved into uh, this massive mansion that they've bought uh, over in um, Montecito, uh, just near Santa Barbara, north of Los Angeles. Now, apparently, according to uh, those who know, this deal that has given them all this money, although it hasn't yet, which is why I come to the next part of the conversation. because We're about to talk to Norman Baker, uh, who's the author. of And what do you do? What the royal family don't want you to know, which has just been updated in paperback form uh, and just been released as well. Here's the thing. They're going to make something like two to three million quid a year, they reckon, from this, right? Now, supposedly, they were getting two to three million a year from Prince Charles. They're now supposedly financially independent. They've supposedly paid back 2.4 million uh, to the crown for the um, Frogmore Cottage renovations, which is what it cost. And they're still supposedly going to be paying some money uh, for the upkeep of Frogmore Cottage, because that's what they're going to use as a home uh, if and when they do come back, even just for a visit. But let's talk to Norman Baker about this, because apparently, apart from anything else, they've got about a 40000 pound pounds mortgage on this mansion they bought with 16 bathrooms, which doesn't sound terribly green. Five car garage uh, as well, of course. Norman, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Uh, very well indeed. Now, I'm not sure I'm buying this financial independence uh, business because, first of all, two to three million, uh, as you would know, Norman, is not going to keep the Duke and Duchess of Netflix in champagne for very long, is it?
4: No, it's not, and uh, we'll have to see what uh, Netflix provides for them. But um, clearly, they're uh, spending money like, uh, like water, mm. so um, it's going to be difficult for them to make ends meet if they're going to carry on at this rate. Well, that's but, right. But, I mean, that... the, inter- the interesting thing for um, the taxpayer of Britain, because that's what I'm interested in, if they want to go off and become Netflix stars at no cost to us, then that's up to them in a way. But uh, I'm still concerned that they're a burden on us. Mm. They're keeping Frogmore Cottage um that is by the way it belongs to the crown estate not to the royal family right. and therefore it, it's public building in that sense because the crown estate is not a royal right. thing so so taxpayer. who
2: will they have so will they have paid the 2.4 million back to the crown estate then
4: well it, no they haven't this is a thing they've paid it to the tovering grant which goes to the queen so mm. in a sense it's not going back to the taxpayer at all right the, the problem with that actually was that the queen just gave them Frogmore cottages it wasn't actually hers to give it belongs mm. to us right. the crown estate but the but leaving that aside um, there's still going to be security, 24-hour security, seven days a week, three, six, five days a year. That's going to cost a million pounds. That's for by the Metropolitan Police comes right. out of taxpayers' money. So we're still paying for that. If Harry and Meghan come across to the UK, we'll pay for their travel because they've kept our HRH status. This is important because uh, when Princess Diana became divorced from Charles, she lost the HRH status and was entirely independent right. and had to fund everything herself hmm. because he's kept that status. We can still pay for security. We still pay for the travel. Yeah. So once again, he's having the best of both worlds. He's opting out of the royal family, but we're still paying for matters. And of course, he's using the royal uh, family in- intro in order to give himself all these deals with Netflix.
2: Well, of course, because they wouldn't be at all interested in these two uh, if they were just ordinary members of the public. But is there some kind of duty of care that we have to have for Prince Harry? Because he is, albeit quite a long way from being heir to the throne, he's still an heir to the throne. I think Prince Harry,
4: has to make up his mind, and he has done largely, is he in the royal family or isn't he? Mm -hmm. And I'm perfectly happy if he wants to leave it. That's up to him. And he should be entitled to do that. No one should be imprisoned in the royal family if he don't wish to be. But if he wants to leave the royal family, he can't then expect us to pay bits and pieces around the edges. And nor should he, frankly, be exploiting uh his mother which he seems to be doing mm. or proposing to do in, in some of the stuff he's doing for netflix she's complained over the years about the media and the way they treated his mother mm. with some justification i might say and now he seems to be exploiting her memory in the same way which is a bit
2: tacky well it really is and also ever since their sort of uh dispersal off to california and, and canada which was where they went first vancouver island you know they seem to be doing more publicity than ever. Uh, the, the, I'm also told that, that she's launched a new lawsuit against Splash, the, t- the, the picture agency in Los Angeles, uh, who took a picture that she says they shouldn't have taken, even though she was walking down uh, a perfectly public area, as far as I can tell. Um, so she's got this obsession with uh, protecting her privacy, as long as it's anybody who doesn't uh, actually make any money for her. Um, but if it's somebody who does make money for themselves uh, and who takes a picture um, and then she... Buys it and somehow sells it on and makes it into an Instagram post, that's fine.
4: Yes, it's double standards, Mike. And, and, you know, if someone's in the public eye and wants to use their image to promote themselves, they can't then complain when someone else uses their image no. uh, for different purposes. I mean, they want to control the media, but the media is not there as a PR machine for the Royal Family or for Harry and Meghan. It's there to report the news.
2: Mm. Exactly. Uh, and that's what it should be doing. Exactly right. But as Piers Morgan used to say, it's a, when they do these interviews as well and they give permission for people to talk on their behalf and this new book that came out, uh, which was written by obviously somebody who was very much in the inner circle. Um, basically, they're invading their own privacy. They're giving people access to their lives. So therefore, people have access to their lives. It's as simple as that. Yeah, they can't have a situation whereby they control the images, they
4: control what goes out and they create this image of themselves as or rather they want to create this image of themselves as a kind of a campaigning couple. They're more like John and Yoko, actually, these days. But, <laughs> I mean, if, the, if they want to create that image, then they have to accept that others will have a different interpretation mm. and they cannot control the news value. They can't control all the photographs. You can't say we can have this photograph out because we've cleared it, but you can not take another photograph. And to come to your point, if they're on a public
2: highway, they're on a public highway. Yeah. And, and anyone can take a photograph on a public highway. Exactly right. I mean, in the mail today, Richard Kay's written a piece, headlined, all pretense is gone. They have no royal future. Is that the way you see it as well?
4: Yes. I mean, I think that's the way they see it. I mean, they've clearly um, distanced themselves entirely. They've moved country. I mean, how more distant can you get from that? Mm. But, uh, and as I say, they're entitled to do that. But what
2: they're not entitled to do is to hang on to the bits they like while getting rid of the bits they don't like. Mm. Well, Omid Scobie, the guy that wrote the book I was just talking about, uh, came out apparently yesterday, I heard this on Dan Wootten's show, and said that he believes now that the, uh, the Meghan and Harry brand is bigger than the royal brand, and you just go, what? What on earth have you been taking uh, or smoking, if that's really what you think? Because I see these two as becoming very uh, old and tired very quickly. And I can't imagine why on earth we would want to be lectured by these two woke individuals. I mean, I don't need to know anything from someone who pays 40 grand a month for a mortgage. Thanks very much indeed.
4: No, and, uh, and I don't need to be told, frankly, as someone who's campaigned on the environment for many, many years, for decades, actually, going yeah. back to the 1980s. I don't need to be told about uh, the damage of climate change from people who are taking private jets all over the place, right. which they do. And, and um, how that like, you know, escalates. Well, absolutely. And uh, there may be they may be flavour of the month in a very small selection of L.A. and Hollywood, but not necessarily flavour of the month. Over here, and I think you know the fact that they're taking legal action against every single publication mm. they don't like right. uh, is is not satisfactory. The press has a function in our country, and we have to accept. I've had to accept as a politician over many years that you take the, you take the rough with
2: the smooth, right? And, and you know they cannot control the media in the way they seem to want to control it. No, quite. And also they've committed the arch criminal act, which in this country is seen as, anyway, as having literally no sense of humour about themselves, no sense of the ridiculous or how ridiculous they actually are.
4: No, well, that's why I say they're a bit like John and Yoko. They're very kind of right on uh, without any reference to the world outside. Um, but I mean, they, they have burnt their, their, their bridges and burnt their boats, whatever the metaphor is. Mm. Um, in, in my book, as you refer to the paperback, you know, the chapter there is called The Fab Four, Let It Be, because we're called The Fab Four by journalists, him, uh, you know, William and Kate right. and Harry and Meghan. And they split up as spectacularly as John and, John and Paul McCartney split
2: up. They really have. And Kate, of course, came into the royal family very much as a kind of um, um, a peasant, if you like. And her family were looked upon very much uh, in a very snobbish way as kind of being a bit down market. You know, mother was a, a BA stewardess and all of that. And, you know, they were involved in some grubby business, which involved actually making money for a living. You know, and that, <laughs> was, <work>. dr- <laughs> and that was dreadful, you know, actually. But uh, they've become sort of sainted now almost in comparison to this lot.
4: Well, they have, in a way. I mean, Kate has taken the decision to, um, to conform to what the traditional royal family want a woman to be. And mm. I don't think that's necessarily right. And i got some sympathy with Meghan here because, you know, women are not simply there to simper and, and support their husbands. They're mm. not simply there to wear the right colour nail varnish. And some of this 1950s attitude is well out of date. And I think Meghan challenged that. And, you know, I think she was right to do that. And But they, they don't like, the royal
2: family don't like... Um, strong women with independent minds. We saw right. that with Diana, right. And what about Prince Charles and his connection? I mean, do you believe that they've actually become financially independent from him? Because I don't believe it.
4: Well, I mean, they haven't been up to now, um, and, and quite clearly, uh, a lot of money which has come from the Duchy of Cornwall has gone to um, has gone to Harry and Meghan as well as to William and Kate. But here's the thing, of course, um, when when we're told that money comes from Charles, if it comes from the Duchy of Cornwall. That's money that comes from us, because the Duchy of Cornwall, in my view, is a public body. Yes. And certainly when Prince Charles pays them out of the Duchy of Cornwall, what he does is he offsets the money he gives them against tax. So we're we're losing out that way as well.
2: Well, also, I mean, there's all this nonsense of, oh, it's his own money. Well, it's only his own money because he happened to be born into the royal family and he was handed it because of the fact that he was born into the royal family. There's no other reason. He hasn't actually made any money. Yes, it's a business and yes, it runs because it runs as a business, but he doesn't pay any tax on it. And quite frankly, um, you know, if he had to fend for himself out in the real world, he would not be worth millions. No, well,
4: I mean, uh, look, let's a couple of things about that. First of all, he calls it a private estate. Um, if it's a private estate genuinely, why is it paying no corporation tax? Right. Um, you know he calls it private when it suits him he calls it public when it suits him mm. but you know each member of the royal family uh, any senior member of the royal family um it's worth at least 20 million pounds right probably a lot more charles i estimate in my book it's worth 100 million pounds mm. well where's that money come from it's come from one of two uh one of two reasons either directly or historically it's come from either um taxpayers money mm. being handed out or it's come from tax breaks, available to the royal family, not available to anybody else.
2: No. There's no other money source. They haven't won the lottery, have no. they? No. Well, exactly right. And they haven't got any sort of ongoing income stream other than the one that they get from what they were handed free uh, at the point of uh, birth. you know. But it's not been a great year for them, Norman. Um, we haven't even mentioned Prince Andrew yet. But, um, <laughs> I mean, they talk, talk about Annas Horribilis uh, some years ago. This has got to be the yes. worst one they've ever had, isn't it?
4: Well, there's worse to come, I think, because uh, the net's slowly closing in on and Andrew. Uh, I think Harry and Meghan will get more extreme than they even have done so far yeah. and more uh, upsetting to the British public. But you know, for me, the real scandal of the royal family is is, is the finances. Um, they are coining it in at a time when everybody else has been tightening their belts. Mm. They are coining it in. Just one statistic, if I may. In 2010, the civil list gave the Queen at 7.9 million. Right. The equivalent sovereign grant in 2018, to less than 10 years on, was 82.3 million. Blimey. Tenfold increase. It's not bad, is it? They are absolutely, and, and we're paying 359 million pound to refurbish Buckingham Palace. They're paying nothing for that, mm. but yet the Queen is collecting and keeping the income stream from the tickets sold for, to visitors to go into the palace.
2: Shouldn't that be nice. being put? Towards, shouldn't that be being put towards the renovations? Of course it should. And we call me old-fashioned. But fashioned. there you are. Nice, <laughs> nice non-work if you can get it. Well, exactly right. Blimey. Well, listen, um, maybe I'll have to try and figure out a way of marrying into the royal family so I can get my hands <laughs> on some of the filthy lucre. But Norman, thank you very much indeed. Author of And What Do You Do? What the Royal Family Don't Want You To Know. Uh, we've just told you what they don't want you to know. This uh, paperback uh, of that particular version of the book has been updated and has just been released. What an extraordinary pair these two are turning into. Um, the the Duke and Duchess of Netflix I must give due credit where it's due and that was of course to one of the callers here at Talk Radio who called Dan Wootten yesterday uh, and said that that was what she was going to call it from this point on it's a fantastic moniker, I think it'll stick the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, what are they going to do next, I dread to think Mid morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio now, I'm delighted to say that because we are moving with the times, we're actually allowing people to come back into the studio. And Olivia Utley sits before me here in our brand new studio, high above the Thames. Olivia, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Hello. Thank you for coming in. You've got an interesting piece of the paper this morning because 20-somethings are all getting the blame, it would seem, apparently now, as they did in Spain, for this kind of spike in the coronavirus um, at the moment. My argument about it, really, though, is that the spike might be there But until we find out that it's actually harming people, which it doesn't appear to be doing, does it matter?
0: Well, yeah, I think that there's an argument that maybe it doesn't only not matter, but it could actually be quite good. It could be that lots and lots of young people who don't get very many symptoms get ill with it, uh, get very slightly ill with it, and that brings up the immunity rate, and we could get to that tabooed phrase, herd immunity. Um, The only issue is that in France and in Spain, it does seem to look as though this spike in young people getting it is corresponding to a spike in deaths among the elderly and vulnerable. Right. So I massively sympathise with, I mean I am quite young myself, but I massively sympathise with people younger than me yeah. even, whose year has just been totally ruined by this and like it's one thing if you're just having to stay working from home for six months, but if you were planning to do your A-levels, go on an amazing summer holiday and then start university, start freshers week, blah blah blah, then it must be awful having to go through this. So I do completely see why they want to just let their hair down and go mm. to a rave, but I I just sort of in the sun today, I'm just kind of urging it just a word of caution that hopefully it won't matter at all you could be quite right that it won't matter at all and then it might even be a good thing but there is just this chance that it will correspond with a spike in deaths and that's just the last thing we need we don't need another lockdown
2: no I don't think we do but my worry about having another lockdown as well is that if we were to have one nobody would actually go along with it because we're already seeing a kind of split in society as far as I'm concerned having just had that conversation with a guy uh, before the news there about working from home lots of people are now saying oh but you know why should we come back to work basically working from home is better we spend more quality time with our families you know we have better life uh, work balance and we don't have to commute anymore but to me that's a very dangerous kind of road to go down because you're basically creating a new society which isn't really a society at all it's full of I, I think neil oliver said to me the other week it's like having a load of battery chickens all just sitting at home you get up you have some food you sit down um, you do your work you don't go anywhere you don't meet anyone you don't interact with anyone there's no sociability going on and if you are a young person who's only just got a job for example you might not have ever met anyone you work with
0: absolutely and i think you learn just so much from being around yeah. people in the office and there are questions that you don't want to put on an email because you feel a bit silly because you don't know something, but you can easily just grab the person next to you and just check something. Um, I find it really weird talking to people who started work during this Mm. pandemic um, and literally, as you say, haven't met the people they work with, don't go out for a drink after work, etc. I think, probably what's quite worrying is that the type of people who are very sociable anyway, um, are going to meet lots of people throughout their careers, are very good at networking, are the ones desperate to go back to the office. Yeah. They probably don't particularly need to. It's the people who really want to just stay at home yeah. because they'd rather just curl up in their own little room and right. do their own little thing who probably would really benefit from being yes. in an office.
2: and I worry about that because then they're not only not going out to an office, but they. I mean, most people's social lives revolve around work, whether you like it or not, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a fireman, whether you're a nurse, you know, and these are all people who been working throughout you know people who work in supermarkets you know they didn't go oh you can't be like well, work from home please you know i'd be much better for my work-life balance well yeah great but unfortunately mm. it wouldn't be any good for the people that you're actually supposed to be serving and as i've said um you know people are complaining to me that they can't get any answers out of any of these call centers because they haven't got anybody with them that they can ask a question to they have to put the phone down and call somebody else
0: yeah it's so that just seems completely ridiculous um yeah, I think that everyone should be getting back to offices quickly. I also think that it's, it's. Of, of course not having people in offices will destroy city centres, you know, all the sandwich shops and cleaners yes. um, all the transport staff who depend on city mm. centres being alive. Um, but also I think it'll ruin people's lives, just the people who are working at home because, well, personally I find that if I don't go out for a few days or a week or something or, or you mm. know, just pop to the shops or whatever, then I stop being as sociable. When yeah. someone says, do you want to go for a drink? I think, you do. oh God, do I want to go Actually, for a drink? By yeah. overthink overthinking? Exactly.
2: It? Well, I was wondering when I first read your piece this morning, I got a bit irritable uh, because I was out for dinner last Night and my my first reading of it, I thought, "What are you telling me? I can't go out for dinner now, you know?" Because you're kind of urging youngsters not to do anything too reckless.
0: Oh yeah, too reckless. I mean, I've I mean, been... I don't
2: go to raves anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm too old for that.
0: Before. I I went to the pub last night. I've been using eat out. I use eat out to help out a lot yeah. during August. Um, you know, definitely we should all be doing all of that sort of stuff. And of course, we need to keep the economy going. And I'm a huge fan of getting out, meeting people, doing mm. everything. It's it's just a couple of these stories that you hear of things like race yeah. which do seem to be kind of covid havens mm. um and it's not it's just not really like necessary i just think there are so many other ways for young people to socialize and just slightly more responsible ways of doing it and i just think there's there's you know i'm i'm totally of of the in the camp of let's get the economy going let's get moving mm. but just to hint of caution Yes, to... because I think most
2: of us are I mean most of us have changed the way that we operate in public you know I, if I walk down the road I tend to make sure I'm not walking too close to anybody you know if I'm in a bar I make sure that I'm not standing too near anyone you know all of those things no, you never thought about
0: absolutely and I think that I think that actually most people anyone who sort of connects to the news and reading about coronavirus every day is doing that all the time of mm. course but I think quite a lot of the, I think part of the problem might be that 17 to 20, 21 year olds don't tend to be completely tuned into the news all the time so uh, strange though it sounds I think it's possible in some parts of the country to sort of forget that this is an issue at all so basically what I'm trying to do is just kind of remind people that it is still a thing and that there are different ways of socialising that aren't Illegal Well raids. What was
2: interesting to me was I got on a train. I don't use the tube that much, but I'm beginning to use it a bit more now, but it's beginning to get a little bit more busy. I got on it last night at about six ish, six and everyone on the, on the, um, the train was wearing a mask. When I got back onto it at half past 11, when I was going home, nobody was wearing a mask. They were all just sitting there chatting away. And I don't know whether that's, um, in any way a, a factor of them being out or having had a drink or whatever it is, but it's, I mean, there's, there's clearly two, I mean, they had masks, but they just weren't wearing them. Um, So I think people are kind of using and abusing the system as and when they feel like it, really.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and that obviously doesn't, doesn't really work. <laughs> well, I mean, I
2: don't know whether it does. That's the thing. Because, I mean, we were told, were we not, when the beaches were mobbed, you remember we went to Bournemouth Beach, and that that, be- there wasn't really a spike as a result of that. We were told because of all the marching that was going on with Black Lives Matter in the summer that that would cause a big problem. Didn't seem to do so. But there are uh, areas of the country that seem to be getting these little spikes. But again, you know, in Scotland, for example, I was talking to a friend of mine who runs nightclubs up there, you're not allowed to play music in a pub because they're worried that people might start singing and which will give more of a sort of uh, you know viral load away if you've got the disease. And it's just, it's very weird. And he was saying, look, what we need to do is reopen the nightclubs because we can manage that, we can regulate it, we can make sure that everybody's doing the right thing, as opposed to kids going on these illegal raves, which they'll do anyway because they want to hear some music and have a dance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good point, actually. That if there are, if there, there have got to be other ways for these kids to socialise, because yeah. it must be just awful. Like, imagine being stuck at home with your parents for seven months right. straight without seeing your friends. If you're twenty, twenty-one, they're, they're called socially starved. That's the right. phrase I keep hearing, and I think that must be completely true. So, yeah, I think if if adults think of sensible ways for them to socialise then they won't be going to these raves which might genuinely end up with a spike right. so
2: i know and like you were saying in your piece about people who don't live together but were our boyfriend and girlfriend or girlfriend and girlfriend and had to kind of not see each other for weeks on end or maybe months on end because they couldn't mingle with another household.
0: Yeah, I mean I hadn't even considered this. I've got a friend with a younger sister, she's eighteen, and she, she she met her boyfriend at school last October and they fell in love and it's this wonderful, you know, new romance, first love. Yeah. And then they just weren't allowed to see each other for seven months. Right. And now they're going off to different universities. And it just got so sound like much of a
2: future that no, particular relationship, does <laughs> exactly. it? But that's the other problem. I mean, you know, my kids go back to school this week. Um uh, one of them who's who's still in sort of year nine he's going to have to wear a mask um, when he leaves the classroom that he's sitting in in order to walk down a corridor. Now, I was told right at the beginning, as, as we all were, that the only way to get this virus was to be within a metre of someone who has it for more than 15 minutes. Now, if you're walking past people in a corridor, I don't see how that's happening, and I don't see why they need to wear a mask. And then I read about a school in Buckinghamshire where they're asking, the headmaster's asking them to wear a different mask every time they do it. So they need six masks a day. And you're kind of going... The world's actually gone mad here and we're beginning to accept this kind of stuff, like the way that Matt Hancock talks about, you know, don't harm your granny. I mean, there's some very odd uh, stuff going on out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of the math things in schools... I. I can't see that that's going to work. I mean, kids will just, six masks a day, they'll just take them off, leave them on yeah. the floor. There'll be dirty masks everywhere. People right. will think, oh, I don't have a mask to get into my lesson. I'll just pick up this old one and put right. it on. Well, and... there's a
2: great cartoon of a kid coming home and the father says to him, you know, um, that's not the mask I gave you this morning. No, I swapped it with uh, with my friend. Yes, it and looks that's the cool. kind of stuff they'll yeah, do because exactly. I liked his better than mine. I mean, it's just, I mean, I think while we have to be careful, there's also a need for us to be, not ridiculously careful and not and not to frighten kids, I think, and frighten young people. And I think a lot of younger people are just saying, well, we don't really think it's going to do us any harm. Mm. So we're not going to be that bothered.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I really do totally sympathise with that. Um, all I'm saying today is just like a little note of caution mm. because there are so many other ways to socialise and it would just be such a nightmare if we had another lockdown that's that's the main reason i mean it's no fun trying to get a job during a recession and the longer this virus is circulating the more we see these spikes the more the government's going to even if it's unnecessary that the government's doing it the government will still impose more restrictions Mm. and the recession will carry on so in the end you know going to a rave probably isn't worth it but by all means go to the pub socially distance with your mates and have some drinks
2: but that's the thing i mean you know i think we heard today they're talking about the possibility of limiting the number i was talking to julie Brew this morning about limiting the number of people that you're allowed to mingle with uh, from a different household and neither one of us could actually remember what the number is i mean i don't know and apparently it was 30
0: it was 30 i didn't know that i thought (laughs) i thought that
2: i thought that was out i mean who's got 30 people in their house i mean what are you doing I mean, that's more like a business than a house, it seems (laughs) to me. I mean, I've never had a dinner party for 30 people. What are you talking about? So, I mean, I think people are quite confused as well. I mean, as you say, I mean, you and I are in the news business, so we're supposed to know. And we don't know. So no. what chance has anybody else got? <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious. Well, anyway, listen, don't go through any raves. Olivia Utley's told you not to. <laughs> um, uh, but do go and enjoy yourselves and spend some money, for God's sake, wherever you are. So, I think we're going to need to get out of this somehow. But thank you very much for uh, stopping by. We'll see you again soon. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
1: The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We had some interesting uh, tweets earlier on uh, from earthquakes. This is from Tony. Uh, Apparently, he says, most earthquakes feel like a lorry rumbling past and just get ignored. Well, do you know, I've actually covered quite a lot of earthquake stories in this country, and there are more earthquakes in this country than you would ever know. Uh, They happen quite often and, and all the time throughout the course of the year. Most of them, though, are so small that you don't really notice. We've had the fracking debate, of course, where people have said, oh, it's the fracking that's causing the earthquakes. Nobody can really prove that, Um, but there certainly is uh, an argument to be made that every sort of so often, certainly every six months or so, there's a reasonably powerful earthquake that you can actually feel if you happen to be near it. And today, uh, the earthquake hit uh, Bedfordshire, and we've spoken to a few people and got some great texts from people who have experienced it. But now it's time for our homeschooling. So uh, let's talk about a political earthquake that took place uh, under Tony Blair's guidance when devolution was basically granted uh, back at the end of the last century to Wales, to Scotland and to Northern Ireland. Because at the moment, people are asking me quite a lot of questions about the way devolution works, because it's not always that straightforward to figure it out. Wales has an assembly, Scotland has a parliament, Northern Ireland has an assembly as well, which are less, slightly less powerful. But let's find out from a proper expert rather than me, uh, Jack Sheldon, researcher in politics at the University of Cambridge, um, just how it's possible um, that the laws of, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland can be kind of um, different in different parts of different countries. Jack, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome.
5: Yeah, good afternoon, Mike, um, and thanks so much for having me on. So, no. yeah... It- Um, What we call devolution is a set of arrangements that, as you said, were introduced under Tony Blair's government in the late 1990s. Mm. Um, And the whole whole point was to enable Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to do things differently from Westminster if they wanted to, um, around particularly public services like health and education are areas which are devolved. Um, Meanwhile, some other powers continue to remain at Westminster across the UK, so running the economy as a whole, for example. Um, And as we've seen during the course of the coronavirus pandemic, this has meant that the devolved governments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have been able to do things a little bit differently in some areas. Um, So although we initially saw the different parts of the UK go into lockdown together, we've come out of lockdown um, at different speeds Mm. and there are some important differences in regulations around quarantine rules, um, the number of households um, that can meet together, for yes.
2: example. Yes. I mean, I'm wondering as well whether, and I know this is not so much of an academic question, maybe more of a political one, whether uh, what's been going on in the last few weeks and months has sort of highlighted the problem with devolution as far as Westminster is concerned. Because what you seem to have is rival kind of political parties vying for who can do something first and who can do something better. And, and you know, Nicholas Sturgeon's obviously been a very... Uh, sort of you know quite a vicious critic at times of of, of the government in Westminster mm-hmm. as has the first Minister of Wales and so it's kind of, for me it's kind of it's no longer just an administrative nicety that these countries have got the right to sort of self-determination in various different aspects but it's become it's almost become more of a political situation.
5: Yeah I mean it's an interesting consequence of devolution um, which was perhaps unforeseen back in the 90s right. um, when devolution was introduced it was at a time when Labour was in a very strong position right across the country, not only at Westminster, but in Scotland and Wales yeah. as well. And that's not so much the case now. In fact, for some years now, we've had the pro-independence, Scottish National Party as the dominant force in Scottish politics, while Labour's been leading the Welsh government. Um, Northern Ireland is run by a power-sharing coalition. I think it's certainly true that that's given a platform, but before devolution, the leader of the Scottish National Party wouldn't have had to present themselves with all the legitimacy and trappings in o- of office of mm. being the leader of a devolved government to criticize what Boris Johnson's doing but also to carve out her own her own route i mean to some extent of course that is a feature rather than a bug of devolution if you're saying that self an element of self determination is to be given to Scotland and Wales, that did always imply the possibility that that might be run by a different party from Mm. that in London and that that might lead to tensions and to moving in a different direction. But of course, with all the tensions that have already been building up over the last few years around Brexit, for example, um, the level of support for Scottish independence, which has remained consistently around the 50% mark since the referendum Mm. in 2016. um, Clearly, this is a very fraught situation at the moment, completely different from when devolution was first introduced. Well, it really
2: is, because interestingly, and I I used to kind of know Tony Blair back in those days, his reasoning for, for devolution was to try and quell this kind of nationalist fervour that was going on in Scotland and in Wales and I don't think he could have foreseen that the labour party would just collapse completely because they just didn't look after their constituents in Scotland and also I don't think they were helped by um, the the voting system which of course is uh, is not first past the post it's it's you know uh, it's far more wide ranging than that and because of the way that people can vote for parties and they will get a much bigger share of the vote and a share of the seats it you know proportional representation works for the snp
5: uh, it certainly worked for them so when the SNP first came into government in 2007 it was as a minority government um through proportional representation at a time when labor certainly still would have been dominant under first past the post i think that since then what we've seen is of course that the SNP have over time been able to convert the stronger footholds that they initially got in the scottish parliament mm-hmm. through the proportional representation system into a situation where they are now clearly the dominant party in scotland even under first past the post for westminster elections um of course we now have the SNP holding the vast majority of the scottish parliamentary seats so it is it is definitely a different situation and yeah the labor party's position in scotland um is one of the biggest changes over the past 20 years that's yeah completely right. changed how we think about devolution.
2: And is it the case now that, um, you know, there's no going back, as it were, you know, when we see, for example, different quarantining arrangements being made in Scotland and Wales, there's no way for Westminster's government to kind of overrule that?
5: No, um, they couldn't overrule that. I mean, I suppose in theory they could pass some new legislation at the centre to prevent that, but that would be extraordinarily controversial. Mm. Um, and of course, in the early days of the pandemic, you might remember that when we went into lockdown, we did have Boris Johnson meeting with Nicola Sturgeon, with Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales and with the First Minister and Deputy First Minister for Northern Ireland and agreeing to s- pursue almost identical regulations and synchronising announcements around going into lockdown, for example. Um, But clearly over time... That didn't last. (laughs) um, No, I mean, over time, the kind of the immediate urgency of the situation wore off um, and perhaps, you know, those underlying political and practical incentives for the governments in Scotland and Wales in particular to pursue their own courses came back into the open. Mm. I mean, we do have quite kind of fundamental differences of principle on a lot of issues Um, and it's probably fair to say that the leaders of the governments in Scotland and Wales don't trust Boris Johnson and his government very much and there's probably mutual feeling Mm. especially from Boris Johnson towards the Scottish government.
2: Yes true and yet they still share quite a lot of information and I mean the first minister certainly in Scotland is allowed to attend Cobra meetings and that kind of thing. Why was it decided that only Scotland could have a parliament though and where Wales uh, Wales and and, uh, Northern Ireland just got an assembly?
5: Well, back in the 1990s, it seemed that support for devolution was highest in Scotland. um, And we saw that in the referendum, then Scotland voted quite comfortably to establish a Scottish parliament. In Wales, it was a much narrower thing. Um, Wales had already rejected devolution back in the 1970s by an 80% margin. And when the referendum was held in 1998, it was by just a, a tiny margin over 50% that they voted in favour Um, But actually, over time, the powers of what was the Welsh Assembly have started to increase and are now much more similar to the Scottish Parliament than they were originally. Um, Recently, it has changed its official name. So it's now known as Senedd Cymru in Welsh or Welsh Parliament in English. So we do now have that equivalence between Scotland and Wales that wasn't there to begin with
2: and they've also got the powers in scotland certainly to raise taxes on on certain uh, issues but they don't choose to use all of those interestingly enough despite the fact that that they could uh they don't yet have that though i don't think in wales and ireland right
5: yeah no that's true so these extra taxation powers for scotland um were introduced particularly after the 2014 referendum um a commission of the different parties um met together and agreed on a uh, on a new host of powers that were transferred um under the Scotland Act 2016. Mm. Um you're right that so far the use of these has been fairly limited. I think that you know to the powers mostly allow Scotland to increase taxes and perhaps there's a you know a feeling that politically to raise taxes above what they were elsewhere in the UK would be a difficult thing to sell. Um but it, it it's true that you know that these powers and also in relation to welfare, for example, aren't always used to the extent that you might imagine, even though they're now there.
2: No, of course. And the age restriction on voting, uh, they can change as well, can't they? But Presumably just for their own elections rather than national ones.
5: Yes. So that's quite a recent development. So now in both Scotland and Wales votes at 16 has been introduced. Of course, we first saw in the UK votes at 16 in the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. and yes, that applies only to the devolved elections. So for general elections, the national franchise of 18 still applies, but we will see votes at 16 in Scotland. Of course, that's an interesting point because we know that support for independence um, and for the SNP is greatest among younger age groups. Mm. But probably the size of the 16 to 18 age group means that that's not going to be the fundamentally important factor in determining the future no of
2: course and finally uh jack i appreciate your time mm-hmm. it, will there be do you think in this parliament another scottish referendum because again um the scots need to get permission basically from westminster mm-hmm. to have a second referendum on independence do you think that will happen so the next scottish parliament election is
5: due in may 2021 i think that will be a key moment if the smp wins a majority they will claim a mandate certainly to hold a new independence referendum um boris johnson has always insisted that as prime minister he would never grant another independence referendum because he sees the first one as having been a once in a generation occasion um i think i'm not going to predict whether we'll have one or not but i would predict that we're going to have you know an almighty clash of mandates over it if the snp does win a majority in yeah. 2020
2: it's going to be fascinating times. Jack, thank you very much indeed. Jack Sheldon, there, uh, researcher in politics at the University of Cambridge.
1: Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On talk radio.